As I said before, I do hope that you had a very Merry Christmas. Um, today, as you can see on the slide, we're going to start a little two-part summer series. So Joel asked me to, to preach this week and next week, so I thought I'd link them together and do something fun. And it's called uh, Flowing Rivers, and I'll talk, I want to talk about being holy people. That as we close out this year and then enter into a new year, I think it's a great time for us to look at ourselves, to look at the year that we've had, to reflect on what we've done and what we've seen, and then to look to next year as to how we can draw closer to God uh, for 2020. And I got the image of flowing rivers. You see, for me, one of my main calls into ministry is just to see people, is to see people fully connecting with God to see people knowing him and all that he is, to know that he's the God that when we rejected him, he didn't stand for that. He came to us. He is just desperate for us to know him and stay close to him daily. You see, I believe the true key to life is to know God and to simply enjoy him forever, for eternity. And so I simply want us to guide us through some ways that we can assess our hearts this week, to assess the condition of our heart, and then to realign ourselves in whatever ways we may need to, so that we can seek him next year. You see, I get the image of a leaf boat. Did anyone ever do this with their kids, or maybe in school themselves? You see, for me, when I was in year five, I went through this stage where I loved, with all my friends, racing leaves, easily entertained, I know. But you see, there was this stretch at school, I went to Greenpoint, where it was about 100 metres of this, all this long gutter. And on raining days, what we would do is we'd all go out and rummage and find the best leaf. There is a best leaf, just so you know. And we'd go to the top of the hill, all getting wet. And the teachers are yelling at us to stop what we're doing, what we wanted to race our leaves. And what we would do is we would put the leaf at the top, we'd build a big dam... And then we would all go down to the bottom, make sure it was all okay, and then run back up the top, let it all go, and then they'd be off. And sometimes what we'd do would be sneaky. We'd go down a bit down the the gutter, and we'd build another little dam to trap everyone else, just in case we were coming last, so then we could start it again. And it was the most amazing thing, because it was a good, it was a long 30-second leaf boat race, and we're just walking, like this, just watching like this. And then every now and again, there'd be like a stick or something. You'd be winning, and then your leaf would get stuck, and then the leaf would overtake you, and it was just, it was actually amazing, if I'm being really honest. <laughs> I loved it, because it should become a sport, I would say. You see, for us, I want us to assess our lives today like we're leaves, and we're going down a gutter trying to avoid and clear out anything that may stop us from flowing freely. Perhaps there are things clogging up our river. Perhaps there are things that are causing us to have dams in our lives that are holding us back. And the the easy thing to do is just to clear it all out so that we can flow freely. You see, today I'm going to do that by looking at the story of the kingdom of God and the rich young ruler in Luke 18 that we just saw. For those who like a title, as always, my title for this, Every King, Every Kingdom Has a King, is Jesus Truly Yours. I want us to look at this story and to see in the same things in the ruler's heart that may stop him from fully connecting with Jesus may also be stopping us. 
Perhaps the things that were clogging up his river are also clogging up ours. Now, in 2014 and 15, I had the most amazing experience to work on a truffle farm in Western Australia, which you may have heard about before. You see, when most people think of a truffle, they think of a little chocolate. But in fact, a truffle is one of these things. It's a little mushroom, fungusy little thing <laughs> that grows underneath uh, certain types of trees. It's very interesting. You see, what happens is it grows off the base system, base root system of certain trees after the tree is inoculated with a needle when they're a little baby tree and there's only a few scientists in the world that know how to do it because only a few of them care enough to try and they literally put a needle into the roots and after 10 years you get truffles okay now after hearing this you may believe me when I say that this mushroom here is worth two and a half to three thousand dollars a kilo and we complain that bananas get expensive at Coles now the way truffle is farmed is that a dog, as you can see right here, will go along the tree line and he will smell for truffles. They're trained to look for truffles because if you've ever experienced a truffle, they're very strong smelling. Okay. It's like garlic, but bad. Um, and so the dog goes along and he's looking for truffles and then the trainer with him, will, the dog is taught to paw at the truffle, dig a little bit, and then the dog trainer comes along, looks, finds a truffle, and then puts a pink tag, uh, like this. So he's put this pink tag where that little red circle is, and then my job was to come along to find the truffle, and I had a little guitar pick, I was right at home, and what we had to do is we had to take a little bit of the truffle off, not too much, to see if it was ripe. And we on our knees, we'd be smelling it, and we'd be trying to figure out if it's ripe. Because if you take it out, when it, like this truffle here, if you take it out when it's not ripe, it's worth about $50. When it is ripe, that's about a $500 truffle there. So, big decision. <laughs> and so, the thing was, um, and then we would pull it up out of the ground. So you see, with truffles being worth so much money, after a little bit of context, this is where I was, right down south here in Manjamup. Right there. Uh, but the thing was, is truffles being worth so much money, it paid pretty well. And as a 15 to 17-year-old kid for those three years, getting paid about $12,000 for about three months of work was pretty good. I loved, 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 loved to look into my bank account and to, to see, like, five figures. <laughs> it was amazing. I'd never had that. I had about $5 when I left, a lot more than that when I came back. You see, I felt like I had a sense of security, in a way, in my money, that I could just buy whatever I wanted, which I certainly did, and I loved how it actually would impress my friends. See, Manjamup, as I said here, is actually a pretty isolated country town. There's not a lot going on in Manjamup other than truffles. And for me, to, to be in that town with some of my friends, we go to the shops and they might bag one, buy, buy one bag of lollies or something like that, and then I'd just buy out the whole store because I could. And I loved impressing them. 
I thought I could be this generous, blessed guy who came from the big smoke of Sydney and, and, and I, in some ways, just loved the attention. They looked to me as someone of importance because of my money and because I was this big hotshot. And I, of course, loved the attention. And you see, for us this morning, there's actually something similar going on in the heart of the rich young ruler. Uh, he loved his wealth and he loved his title in his wealth. And so, therefore, his title and wealth was not in God. If you open up your Bibles to the story this morning, it really helps you a lot as we go through the story. But as a bit of context to who he was, um, he, was prob- he was probably some kind of Pharisaic ruler, pretty much a teacher of the law back in that time. Uh, so pretty much he was someone who was devoted to following what God said to do, to follow the laws, to follow the Ten Commandments, and then to teach it to other people. And from this, he had found a way to gather wealth. And in Jewish culture, if you gathered wealth, if you were someone who had a lot of money, it didn't mean you had worked really hard, it meant God had blessed you. So he thought all his wealth came from God, therefore he was the, big, he was the best thing in the world. And so he could look at himself, think, I follow God's ways, I teach other people to do it, I have a lot of money, so therefore God's pretty happy with me, I'm pretty good, I know what I'm doing. You see, however, as we can see in the story, Jesus isn't so easily fooled. As we look to our story, Jesus immediately sees some dirt clogging up this man's river. The ruler addresses uh, in verse 19, the ruler addresses Jesus as good. He says, good teacher. And straight away, Jesus rebukes him, saying, why do you call me, Je- why do you call me good? Jesus answered, only God is good. Now, I do find that a little strange. I find it a little strange that he's come, he said, good teacher, like, I want to hear from you. And Jesus says, don't call me good. When when people call me good, I kind of like it. But Jesus doesn't like it. You see, it was actually a little strange that he said, good teacher. Jesus has always been referred to by his disciples as master uh, or teacher from people who weren't his disciples. But on this instance... The rich young ruler adds in good. And so we ask ourselves, why did he do that? If Jesus rebukes him, we have to ask why he did that. And I believe it was for two reasons. Firstly, it seems as though he was trying to impress Jesus, calling him good in front of everyone else because he knows what good is, before asking a question like, what can I do to get into heaven, good teacher? Because I'm blessed, I have money, and surely I'm getting in. And secondly, I think, and more importantly, it's because the ruler was obsessed with title. He was obsessed with worldly opinion. So as someone who was obsessed with those things, cause teachers good, to cause Jesus good for what he's doing rather than who he is, which I think is a little bit of an insult to Jesus, to call him good for the miracles he does and just that alone. So Jesus in his, for Jesus in his divinity, is good. Simply who he is makes him good, not what he does. So there's a call on us to not just do the right thing, but to actually live for the right thing. And that's actually my first point for this morning. Only God is good. Credentials don't matter. As I said, Jesus very quickly rebukes the ruler for calling him good. Not just after this one comment, 
And also kind of for the fact that Jesus knows everything and can see his heart behind it because he is the son of God. He sees the ruler's heart behind what he says. Jesus is saying, don't call me good because you are impressed by me. Only God is good. You see, it's so easy for us as humans to get caught up in ourselves and to be impressed by people. More and more in our world, things are becoming so important. We are impressed when people have high degrees. We are impressed when people have great wealth. And our brain straight away to think, they have good things, they have good stuff, therefore they must be good. Our consumer brains are making us think that title and what a person achieves is what makes them great. For the young culture in the room, if they have a lot of followers on Instagram, maybe that makes them great. They're doing things right if they have that much of a following. You see, there is such a strong pull for kids these days to finish school, go straight into uni, get a good job, get a good house, do these things, and then you'll be good. Then you'll be successful. You're doing the right thing if you get all that stuff. And now there's nothing wrong with wanting to buy a house. There is nothing wrong with finishing school and doing those things if Jesus is the Lord of your life and not the house and not the things. It is through following Jesus and having our hearts set on him first that will make us good, for he is good. And doing good things will flow out of that. The good, that's the point I'm trying to make and that I believe Jesus is as well. Jesus is humbling the man, but also letting him know that Jesus is going to be upfront and honest with him. You see, our passage starts off this, for this morning with the ruler asking Jesus what he must do to go to heaven. Essentially, the ruler is trying to guarantee his place in heaven in front of everyone else. He thinks he knows he's going to heaven. He just wants everyone else to know it. And so Jesus responds with a usual standard for righteousness. He says the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor and all the other things. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. And this can seem very Old Testament to do the right thing and God will bless you for it. And that's definitely not the point that Jesus is trying to make. You see, Jesus sees the man's heart and he's testing it. Knowing he was rich and attached to his money, his problem, his problem wasn't that he didn't follow the commandments. In some ways, Jesus knew that he did follow them, but he didn't follow them for God. He followed the law out of greed and he had lost his heart of love to follow the law and was living to be blessed rather than blessing others. Perhaps the river was flowing, but not as freely as it should. For he had all these bad attitudes, distractions, and greed all tangled up in his river. Now it is noble. I really do think it is noble that he was so devoted to the law, that he wanted to follow God's law. But you see, the problem with the Pharisees and the rulers that Jesus addressed time and time again was that they were doing the law, uh, they were following the law, that the way that they were doing it, sorry, was wrong. As I said before, his heart needed to be in following the law for God, not for himself, not for his wealth, not so that he could look good to other people. He had to follow it because it came from God. Jesus was actually also setting him up, showing him that, what he was, that the things he was doing isn't what he needed to do. It was really that he wanted to show him that his heart needed to be about God. 
So now we gain an understanding to when Jesus says, you still lack one thing. He lacked one thing, for his sin wasn't that he didn't keep the commands, but that he'd become proud and attached to his blessing. As I said, he didn't live for God. He did the right thing for the blessing that came with doing the right thing. Which leads me, leads me to my second point. Don't just do the right thing, live for the right thing. Jesus says to him in verse 22, you said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now Jesus says this because he's telling the ruler that all his wealth, all his title and how good you think you are and how much you think God has blessed you means nothing. In fact, it is the very thing holding you back from the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to simply unclog his river. You need to get rid of it because if your heart was for God, then living for Jesus to sell it would have been easy. If he was already living with the right attitudes, he'd be like, sweet, I know you're God. See you later, stuff. Let's go, Jesus. But straight away, when it comes to a point between the wealth that he thought he'd got from God And God himself, he chose the wealth. He chose the stuff. He very quickly went from thinking that he was a blessed man in the eyes of God to see that he wasn't caring about God at all. He was caring about himself. You see, it's it's not that he didn't do the right thing. He just didn't live for the right thing. His trust was in his money, not Jesus. He couldn't let go of his wealth because his trust in his master was his wealth. That was his king. He wanted the kingdom of heaven, but wasn't willing to let his earthly kingdom go. Salvation comes through giving up our life to Christ. We can't save ourselves. We must see ourselves as nothing and to be made new in Christ. Money and things can't be our master. Jesus must be. And so I want to address for a moment why Jesus says, why does, the Bible, why does Jesus say that it's so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? He says this, for to enter into the, into the kingdom of God requires a new heart. It is their heart that they need to fix. And the wealthy, back in the time of Jesus, it's contextual, they felt two things. Firstly, that they had already been blessed. As I said before, the ruler thought that his wealth had come for God, therefore he was already good. Okay? But also, to build wealth makes it their primary focus. It's not easy to be rich back in that time. They follow the, they follow the law. They rip people off. They judge others just so that they can build more wealth. They're trying to acquire more and more blessing and they become obsessed with it. In Jesus' time, to have wealth and a love for wealth means to also have a love for worldly things and to have a false sense of security in your wealth. So Jesus is saying that wealth cannot be your master if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. They must live for God and put their wealth aside so they can just draw nearer to God. They need to unclog the whole river so they flow freely towards him. 
And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what do we need to set aside? What dirt in our rivers is also stopping us from flowing freely? What is not allowing us to be fully in God's presence all the time and is holding us back from a full relationship with him? We aren't perfect. I know I'm certainly not. So we constantly need to be focusing and changing our focus onto him. It's an everyday thing. Sometimes we miss days. That's okay if we change our focus back again. The ruler seemed righteous, as we know, but Jesus wasn't so convinced. But from this comes a question. If the one who seems blessed by God, the one who seems to have it all right and is most religious and seemingly righteous before God, who then can be saved? Well, to bring you to that answer, here's my third point. Don't, there it is. <laughs> Our God is good and we must follow him into the kingdom of God. In verse 26 to 27, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this is where the hope comes for us. Jesus knew that he was going to make a way to be saved when he was talking to the young ruler. He knew that salvation and restoration of the heart could only come from himself. What the ruler needed was to be saved by Jesus. What we need is to daily be saved by Jesus. It was impossible It really was impossible for the ruler to come to Jesus with the heart that he had. He needed to be transformed by Jesus in order to have chosen Jesus over his wealth. So therefore, we too need that same heart. And that poses a question for us. As I said in my point that only God is good and we must follow him into the kingdom of God. But that means that we need to never stop. Do we stop? Each day, do we commit to following him with all that we have? Friends, if we have a new heart, Jesus is telling us that we must be always seeking him first. We need to constantly, constantly check our hearts that they are focused on the true things that matter. And that, and that is taking up our cross, following our Christ. What is impossible for man is possible with God. We know that Jesus renew our hearts, but do we also follow him? Do we allow Jesus to come through like a flood and clear out every bit of dirt? I'm telling you this morning, we can't do it ourselves. And if we haven't done ourselves, we don't have to feel bad. We just need Jesus to do it for us. Do we hold on to things that we shouldn't? Do we walk down our gutter looking for twigs and things to clear out? Or do we kind of just hope it'll just happen? You see, I think it is fair enough at this point in our story that Peter pops up and asks a little question. He's like, um, Jesus, we've given like everything up for you. Are we good? Like, are we doing the right thing? He says, um, as we read in verse 28, I don't have here, which is funny, but that is okay. He says, uh, we've given up everything to follow you. 
Obviously, he's seeking a little bit of reassurance for Jesus after he kind of just smashed someone that they thought was pretty good. And to answer his question, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and to come and to come eternal life. As a newly married man, to hear that verse is quite challenging because I love Claire a lot. <laughs> this seems really, really harsh. But all Jesus is doing, he's just driving his main point home. He's exaggerating for the purpose of, of making his point. That those who are willing to leave everything to follow God, that those who would rather follow the God of this world than the things of this world, that those who are most concerned with the kingdom of God will receive it. God is wanting our whole lives to be devoted to him and his kingdom. And there is a call for us to to devote ourselves to God and all that we have so so that way we can be seen as righteous before God for he only sees himself. Nothing and no one can come between you and God. When we live like this, It'll show that we truly are living for God and following Christ first in our lives. Not because we want to enter into the kingdom of God, but because our hearts will already be in the kingdom of God. Can we see the difference here? There's a, there a real truth in living for doing the right thing instead of living for the right thing. We must fixate our hearts to Christ so that we can truly experience the freedom of God's kingdom here on earth. Every kingdom has a king. Is Jesus truly your king? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are my king. I thank you so much that you're not always my king, yet you remind me how important it is. Jesus, I thank you that you're the God who will not leave me alone, or nor will you leave anyone else alone. You are the God that will keep coming back to us, no matter how many times we turn away. God, as we look back on the year that we've just had, as perhaps we see a river, maybe it is, it's, there's no water, it's just twigs and things. Or perhaps we need to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, because I believe we can always draw closer to you. I pray, God, that you would come through like a flood, that you would clear away everything so that we can be righteous before you, that we can stand before you with arms open, knowing that you're waiting there, arms open for us. God, I want to pray against the spirit of guilt. You died for our sin and also our shame. So that way, when we don't do what we need to do, You take it upon yourself and say, just come back to me. Just come back to me. Don't worry about it. Just come back to me. God, as we enter into 2020, may we come back to you. Amen.